Welcome to the third episode of The Joy of Aquatics. We are still talking about trauma. Now, this is our last episode on trauma. So let's catch up those people that haven't heard the first two episodes. We have spoken to Dr. Daryl Higgins, who told us about trauma and what it is. We spoke to Mel Nelson, um, who does run an infant aquatic survival swimming program along with other programs at her swim school. We have spoken to Alina Graham and also Shannon Townsend, who both gave us some really good ideas on what trauma looks like in the pool or what crying kids might do if they're becoming really, really fearful. So we've got a good idea of what it is and what it may look like and how it may present in our kids. And what I really wanted to talk to Julie Zancanaro and also Sue Mayo about today is really about getting some specifics. What specifically, where are our boundaries? Where are they? Do we put policies in place? How do we how do we manage this? Now, I know we've briefly touched on um, the whole industry aspect with Aster and Swim Australia and also um, OzSwim coming out with their stances and positions on forceful teaching techniques. So yes, we're trying to get rid of our forceful teaching techniques, but where are our boundaries? Because behavior is complex and every situation and every child is different. How do we do this and do it well? Now, before we jump into the interview with Julie Zancanaro, there is one thing that I would really like to point out to people. And that is that if we as adults cannot control our own emotions, we have no business trying to help a child manage their emotions. So we see it on Facebook all the time. There's that little meme that comes out that says, our job as adults is to allow children to join our calm, not for us to join their chaos. So if you've had a really bad day, your job is to leave all of that at the door when you're teaching swimming. And has anyone ever experienced when they have had a really bad day and then they've gone teaching and they've actually come out feeling better because they've forgotten about their really rubbish day? That has happened to me so many times, but I just wanted to bring it to people's attention that if you can't manage your own emotions, you have no business helping children try and manage their own. Now, I'm certainly not perfect and my lovely husband Val and my kids will tell you that I'm certainly not perfect and it is one of the reasons that we decided that we were going to close the swim school and I probably held out a lot longer than I should have, Um, but my students at the swim school got the best of me. My staff and my students, they got the best of me. And when I came home, my kids were left with the dregs, left over with the sloppy seconds. And those were the moments when I could not control my behavior. And that's not fair. So I'm not saying we have to be perfect all the time, but we do need to be very, very mindful about how we are behaving around children. And are we setting the right examples? But let's have a listen to what Julie Zancanaro has to say because she has some fantastic points that she's raised when when I caught up with her. I'm Julie Zancanaro. I'm a part owner with my husband at Hill Swing, um, which is in in the outskirts of Sydney. Um, They've got a swim school of about 2,600 kids a week. Um, My background is a paediatric occupational therapist, so child development is really, really big part of what we do here. Julie, can you let the listeners know, what is your definition of trauma? I think if you look up, you know, what trauma means, um, it actually, uh, you know, the definition is it's the deeply disturbing or distressing experience 
Um, and I think most of us can relate to various times in our lives where we found something traumatic that has happened to us. I guess after listening to Fran Waters from the USA, who's an expert on childhood trauma, and listening to her at the World Conference last year, um, I did realise that it is an appropriate word for us to be using because even though young children can't express, they can't verbalise how they're feeling, um, we can only um, read their body language and listen to their crying or watch them shutting down. And we have to assume that when um, they're doing that repeatedly um, and they can't be comforted very easily in a swing lesson, that they really are um, possibly getting to that stage where you can say it's more than just being distressed or upset and that that is actually becoming real trauma for that child. Um, when I came into the industry 30 plus years ago, I was a bit devastated. You know, in the early 80s, I'd come out of pediatric occupational therapy. I, was, I, um, I just presumed that people who were teaching young children to swim would have a, you know, a thorough background in early childhood education and that it would be, you know, a gentle, developmentally appropriate approach. And I was really disappointed to see a lot of the programs at that time weren't. Um, but I do get disappointed sometimes when I see that people, after such a long time of fantastic development in the industry in Australia, that some people are still not um, really getting the effect that they can be having on children and negative effects. They're possibly mm. still not understanding that, and that disappoints me. But about two and a half years ago, I saw a video um, on someone's webpage, just on Facebook actually, um, promoting this and so It was one in my area of Sydney, um, and it was a child who was distressed to the point a very young child who looked perhaps eight months old and distressed to the point um, where she had completely shut down. She was on her back in her clothes alone in the pool with the parent and the instructor standing on the side videoing and commenting. Um, so for that child, um, she had gone into complete shutdown apart from whimpering and trembling at times, she had given up. Um, and just, I, I think that one of my staff saw it, brought it to my attention, that was that was a final straw for me. Um, and we made a pact. We said, my husband and I and key staff here said, you know, look, we're going to from this challenge no matter what, um, you know, how hard it gets, how much negativity we have perhaps from certain segments of the industry, but we're going to do whatever it takes. If someone wants to come at us and try to sue us or whatever whatever might come of this, you know, we're, we're going to do it. Um, and, you know, I've always tried to be very respectful and I am, you know, I do appreciate there's many different ways of teaching children to swim and I don't name particular programs and I'm not dis disrespectful to people who have different opinions on how children should be taught. But I do draw the line when it comes to, you know, people who are obviously distressing, traumatising children in the name of teaching them to swim or to be safe in the water. Mm. Um, it's not valid. I think with the Royal Commission, um, it's rolling out their 10-point plan across the nation. I think that we're going to be scrutinised very closely by the child protection agencies. And I think it's time for everyone to really start getting their houses in order, Joy, and really understand, um, you know, the physical and emotional long-term effects that traumatic experiences can have, on, you know, on young children. 
Yeah, one of the points you made um, in that presentation that I heard was that our industry is not regulated by law. And if the industry doesn't start to regulate itself, um, that's going to change. Mm, I believe it will. So I think that's very important with swim schools to be, you know, very open. And you can, as you know, you can teach water safety and survival skills to young children. They can be doing amazing things without ever having been traumatised in a second lesson. Um, You know, the way, it's just the method, the way you go about it. Um, And, uh, you know, and and being able to read their readiness and, and really understanding the cues. I get so disappointed when teachers tell me that our oh, kids just cry because what they do, you know. Um, and I think, well, come on, you know, you, you really need to go and educate yourself um, and learn how to read children because if they are crying in a swimming lesson, they have a reason to be crying and you need to find out what that reason is and you need yeah. to address that. Yeah. Well, children don't cry for nothing. And can you imagine if you walked into any other early childhood education setting and, and children were crying? and people were not addressing that. I think that, you know, children cry, but you have to find out why they're crying and you have to address it. And if a child's crying repeatedly, then there's something about the situation you're putting them in that's causing that crying. Um, But why not crying? I know at Hill Swimming we have a no crying policy because... I find if I'm not that firm to say it's a no-crying policy, people tend to make excuses for why the child's crying. And that could be teachers or parents or managers, anybody, you know, will will then start trying to justify it. Oh, they just do that. They just do that every week, the first, you know, part of the lesson. It's just what they do. They settle down after a while. You know, that's that's a classic one you might hear. Um, you know, oh, she'll be right. You know, she's got to learn, you know, once I take her out into the middle of the pool or, or get the parent out of the picture, she's okay and she settles down. But, you know, in, a, in an early childhood setting, that is not okay. You need to actually look at, from the child's perspective, you need to look at what's going on. We have a, the way we do it, our policy is, if a child's crying for more than three minutes, if a child's upset for more than three minutes, we have the manager step in, everyone steps in to see, hey, what's going on? What can we do to help? You know, if the teacher's not able to settle the child and have them happy to participate and learn within three minutes, we step in and help. Yeah. Um, if that behaviour continues for three weeks in a row, then we say, hey, come on, this is becoming part of this whole situation and we switch everything up. You know, we'll try another teacher or another class or... You know, there's, there's, we'll, we'll step in and really get big guns, human assistant in, whatever we need to do. But for some reason, people seem to think that in swimming, it's okay to take the children crying from a parent, tell the parent it's okay, I've got this, and then take them out into the middle of the pool where they feel they're being held to ransom. Yeah. And that's the sort of stuff that isn't okay. Yeah. Okay. There's been a lot of conversation about forceful teaching techniques. Can you explain to the listeners what exactly is a forceful teaching technique? If you're pushing them under or if you're putting them on their back without readiness and then just letting them struggle to get into that back position and teaching them that that, that they need to stay still on their back or they will get water over their face, so that's, you know, aversion teaching, which is very mm-hmm. distressing. 
um, then that's not okay. You know, you, it's it's um, it's forced to remove support when support's needed. That's forced because the child's helpless. What people who are using those methods are doing is they're taking advantage of the helplessness and the lack of communication in the child, um, and that's forced. Forcing them in when they're not when they're not ready. It could be forcing them under when they're not ready. Forcing them onto their back when they're not ready. I think often it's a, you know a power thing that we have power over a young child, and that that power gets abused. Do you think crying is a form of trauma? Is crying a form of trauma? Mm. Crying is a form of communication. Is crying a sign of trauma? Very often, yes. When you're a young child experiencing trauma, you know, can you run away? Often not. Definitely not in the pool. Can you hide? No. Ash out at the person traumatising you? Probably not. Um, often the only thing left to do is to cry. Mm. Um, so cry is communication, it's not trauma, but crying is often communicating the trauma. And so when a child cries, you know, obviously the first thing you need to think about is, oh, am I inadvertently causing the stress or trauma, fear or anxiety to this child? You know, is it a separation anxiety from the parent? You know, is it, um, you know, that they're cold or tired or hungry? You know, what is it that's called that or not well? You know, what's causing this crime? What are they trying to, you know, what is it they're trying to communicate to me? Yeah. Um, and it's really important that, that you work it out. And if you can't work it out, you get some help. That, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, I have felt like in the industry uh, over the last few years, we've started talking about crying and that sort of escalated to trauma. How did this happen? How did how did we get here? And you said previously um, that this is something that has concerned you and worried you for quite some time in the industry. Have you seen this um, getting worse? Um, I saw it get better and worse in Australia. Probably, you know, 15 years ago, Anyone who was causing the stress to a child wouldn't want to get up at a conference and say they were going to, they were just doing that. What I've found happening probably in the last few years is we have started to have people sort of get up at conferences and educational forums and say, if you're making the child, you know, safer around the water, um, that, that sort of the end justifies the means. And I think, you know, I've I do think there's going to be, at some point, as I said, there's going to be other agencies getting involved and some external monitoring of the industry happening if we don't understand ourselves, if we can't get it right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and and it's not about survival for me because we all teach children, you know, what the safety and survival. It's yeah. how you teach them. Yeah. And, what expectations you set up in within the teachers and the parents in the swim school as to what is okay and what is not okay um, yeah. as far as teaching practices with children. But if you try and force them, um, then you don't know. You don't know which ones are going to have the resilience to get through that and which ones are really going to be scarred for life. How can we as an industry get this right? 
think we've made huge gains in the last few years. I think the statements that have been put out by um, AXA and ASTA and OSFI, um have been, you know, fantastic because um, if the bodies don't actually take a stand, then, you know, we don't have benchmarks as an industry. So yeah. I think that's been, that's been huge. Um, the United States Physical Association has now got on board with that and accepted, you know, those sorts of statements and policies again, which is huge. That, that is a big one. But I think that's huge. I think we've come a long way. Um, I think we can't drop the ball, though. I think we have to persist. I think we need to get ahead of external regulation with really effective internal regulation. And, you know, if anybody is inadvertently traumatising kids um, during swimming lessons, now's the time for them to get educated and realise what's happening and learn other ways of, you know, of achieving that outcome of children who have fantastic water safety and survival skills. And I would question them, you know, why does a child under, say, two need to, you know, know how to save themselves if they fall into a pool? Why does a one-year-old need to know that, Joy? But mm. can you really justify the trauma that you have to put that child through to get them self-rescuing at six months or 12 months, 18 months, you know, where are we going wrong as adults if we think that they're going to get near water and have to self-rescue at those ages and that we have to put them through so much trauma because they do have to be traumatised if you're teaching a child to self-rescue at those ages. It can't be done without a degree of trauma. Um, and I'll gladly say that in any public forum. Um, I, would put a, I would put a challenge out anyone who thinks that they can get a 6-month-old, 12-month-old or an 18-month-old to self-rescue, if they can show us the process from the beginning to the end um, and and not have that child experiencing any trauma along the way. So I, I do think, you know, we have to be very frank and honest and open about that. Um, once kids are eight months, as you and I know, plenty of them can gently and safely, if they're spending enough time in the water and they've got good teachers, that they can start, you know, doing some pretty amazing Water safety and survival skills come out, you know. But yeah. and you do the groundwork when they're little, you know. But you provide support, and you know, a baby under twelve months should always you should always have your fingertips there ready, you know. Even if they can float, great. But have your fingertips ready. Don't let water go over the face. Yeah, you know, they're a little baby. They need to be protected. Julie, thank you so much. Oh, I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Take care. Bye. So it's really interesting to hear Julie speak about trauma and early childhood education in swimming. I think she raises some really good points and starts to make, well, she started to make me question where the boundaries are. Um, I know she spoke about taking a child out of um, mum's arms and just saying it's okay I've got it from here and going into the middle of the pool and 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 going from there but in when she was talking about that I it didn't hit me at the time but reflecting upon what she's speaking about I have taken a an upset child out of an upset mother's hands and within two minutes that child had calmed down and so had the mum to me that isn't a traumatic experience for them that's my way of offering care 
Um, that's my way of advocating for the kids. So is that trauma? Isn't it trauma? Where are the boundaries here? Um, and I think that sort of leaves us still with a lot of questions. Behaviour is complex. So what might be okay in one situation might not be okay in another situation. Essentially, I think we're all on the same page. We don't go out to traumatise children. We all know that kids do cry to communicate. And we have all said that we need to actually address why the children are crying, find out why, what is wrong, why do we have tears. I feel like some of us just have a stronger stance. So to the point where Julie has written a policy surrounding crying. The next person I've spoke to is Sue Mayo. Now, Sue has helped me clarify everything that Julie has said. Julie is very, very passionate and she kind of blurred the lines for me a little bit. But reflecting on the conversation that I did have with Julie, I was able to sit back and go, okay, well, the lines are a little bit blurry now. How do I solidify them? So when I finally got a hold of Sue, she's a super busy woman. Um, it's taken me a good four, five weeks to get a hold of her and actually knuckle out some time. I've had some time to process all the information that everyone has heard up to date. And I'd come up with some scenarios that I thought were common within the industry that teachers really needed to hear. So this next section is, is a conversation with Sue Mayo, that I think every swimming teacher really needs to hear, especially if we as an industry are going to start tackling this topic really well. Speaking with me right now is Sue Mayo. Sue, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, I first started teaching swimming when I was um, 17. Uh, mm -hmm. Then as I had my own children, got married um, and had my own swim school um, in New Zealand and um, and then I became very interested in special needs and specifically infant aquatics and currently I am now um, general manager of a company overseeing um, a lot of children um, and uh, teachers and um, sharing a lot of the information that I've gained through the studies that I'm now doing at um, university um, on um, psychology and developmental psychology specifically uh, on um, understanding how we can improve our teaching with children. So you've, you've actually been studying this a lot the last few years, haven't you? Yes. Your, as part of your degree. Yes. yes. I originally doing. I was originally, I did some case-based studies uh, in my own swim school in New Zealand and I was speaking at the World Aquatic Baby Congress and decided that I would do some underwater footage, which was very crude uh, back then, but it was of mm -hmm. interest to me uh, that we, we needed to know a lot more than just delivering a program. Um, so I first started studying um, in 2007 and then had to defer my my degree and in that period of time between then and when I picked it up again 10 years later, a huge change has, um, has come about with research um, on so many levels which, is, which excites me about sharing with so many swim teachers. So one of my first questions and this is something that I've asked a lot of people is do you have a definition of trauma that is specific for teaching swimming? I have been trying to find a succinct definition 
of trauma for anything. And it is really difficult because the majority of definitions of trauma refer to uh, specific instances and and mostly with uh, severe child abuse or Mm -hmm. uh, post-traumatic stress. With swimming, there specifically isn't a definition per se. My definition when I explain to teachers what to look for is there are three types of stress. The toxic stress, so three types of stress, a positive Mm -hmm. stress, tolerable stress and toxic stress and it's the toxic stress that moves into trauma because once you have activated a lot of toxicity and and, and that's a chemical reaction, cortisol um, is, it then starts changing a lot of our our organs um, and our brain function and it interferes with the neurotransmitters. That creates trauma and therefore trauma needs to be addressed specifically regarding that situation. My definition of trauma in a situation with swimming is when a child appears to be in toxic stress which is continual crying without any emotional support from the primary caregiver. Okay, without crying. Now, does it have to be the primary caregiver or is that just relating to infants only? What if the child is, say, four, five, six, and they're in the water without the primary caregiver? Can the teacher be the provider of that support? The teacher can be, if there is trust, if there is trust, if there mm. if is a first experience for that um, for that child in the water, initially you need to gain that trust. So to yeah. gain that trust, it is paramount that the teacher engage with lots of language with that child because trauma can also manifest as silence. Um, it can also manifest in in body language. Um, so particularly in an older child, they may be silent. That is another component of what a swim teacher needs to be aware of. So my advice to all swim teachers is create a conversation, a lot of distraction, a lot of nurturing. Now, they've clearly come with somebody to the swimming lesson. There is an assumption that person is their carer and they have a trust with them. The first response would normally be if I needed to be rescued is I'm going to go to my primary caregiver or the person who has brought me to this environment for some reassurance that this is okay. If there is a lack of support from that person in the first instant or a withdrawal of that child from that situation, we're actually exacerbating the situation. It needs to be in conjunction with the person that came with them as well as the teacher in the first instance and that support from the caregiver is Lucy is going to be your friend she's going to look after you while you're in the garden. you can let's see what Lucy will do with you so there's a conversation around the situation so that the brain of the child that's in overdrive has the opportunity to be distracted and settle down to refocus, reset and become more familiar with the environment with some trust. So it's lots of language, lots of nurturing and reading the body signs of the child. So it's not necessarily crying in an older child, 
it could be total silence. That, to me, makes total sense, which I'm really happy about. I have felt like going through this process over the last four or five weeks that I've had a really clear understanding of it. I've spoken to a few people. I haven't had a clear understanding of it. And hearing you say that, I'm like, nope, I'm good. I've got this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and Joy, I, I think we often have a presumption that we're looking at it from a, a perspective of getting a program done. And, you know, we talk a lot about time on task. Not one box fix all. Not every child is going to fit into a time on task um, situation. We need to look at it through their lens. If I was five, have never been in the water before, and suddenly somebody comes along and goes, there you go, and is passing you over to a stranger and says it's okay, if that stranger is not smiling, not making, you know, engagement with me, looking at me, smiling, then of course I'm not going to be responsive to that. And it just compounds the anxiety that is within. Yeah, well, it comes back to what a lot of parents will say to their kids, don't go near the water, you'll drown. Don't talk to a stranger. And then all of a sudden the kids end up at a swimming pool expected to go into the water with a stranger and parents are like, well, I don't know, they swim with me, why don't they want to swim with you? <laughs> and, and that's right, Joy. And, and parents come from a, you know, a loving place when they say to the teacher in front of the child, oh, they're scared of water and they don't want to put their face in the water, but I've told them it's okay not to do that. And my first response is they have two ears. They can hear what you're saying. Um, let's have a different approach to how, how we look at this. It's about educating um, the parents a little bit more on if they remove them from a situation we might think they they think they're helping but in actual fact what they're doing is reinforcing that child's um, fear that I knew that was a bad thing and that's why you're removing me so we need to and look at the situation from a child's perspective and I think that will will make it a whole different approach for everybody in that way. Yeah, building that relationship with parents is just as important as building that relationship with the kids. Yes. You need that relationship of trust with the kids to be able to push them into that tolerable stress. And you've got to have that relationship with the parents. Otherwise, you can't build a relationship with the child. So I've experienced that before where a parent won't, allow me to build a relationship with a child. That's a challenge uh, because I don't know how you can move forward, you know, when you're dealing with children um, to not create a relationship. Do you have any specific examples of how we actually might traumatise traumatize children? What is it that swimming teachers do that puts them into that toxic stress? Mm. Interesting. And I have also uh, been one of the teachers that have perhaps um, may have pushed a few boundaries. And we all do it, but we don't know what we don't know. The situation when a child um, arrives at a swimming pool is screaming and arching back and saying, I don't want to get in. And we're talking, you know, four-year-olds, five-year-olds who just don't want to be in the water. And the objective of the parent is, I've paid for these lessons, you're getting in the water and don't be so ridiculous. Um, we don't know why that child is like that. The parents are just saying, well, they can do this at home and we're just going to put them in the water and that's absolutely fine. But by a parent just handing a child over to you 
and that child is arching back and resisting from you, that is creating an adrenaline rush with Mm -hmm. that child that is not healthy for that child. Now, if they calm down, then you're at a point where you, you may be gaining. However, the moment that child is in the pool and has been pushed into doing something, you're behind the eight ball straight away because the brain is in a, a mode of high anxiety mm-hmm. and it isn't, it's going to be a long journey to encourage that child to participate in the learning program because once adrenaline starts kicking in, then it can take up to half an hour before it settles down, before they can refocus and decide that they're going to participate. We would prefer if their child is given the opportunity to calm down, new environment, new smells, new possibly new teacher, new noises, and just sit and watch. A child can learn by watching just as much as they can by participating in the first instance. So once they are calm, you can, you can um, encourage them to engage because if you're looking to create a new synapsis of learning, it's best done with play. It doesn't take as long if it's play-based as opposed to forcing a child into the, into the water. Mm. Often when you see a child crying and the parent passes them over and that teacher says, just go outside for a while and I'll get them to calm down is also not the ideal process to encourage a child to settle down because you want to do this together. You want the primary caregiver to be engaged with that child to assist with the soothing and the nurturing and the loving that this is a journey we're on together. Now I'm out of the water, you're in the water, but we're on this journey together. So then we can talk about it when we go home and we can get excited about it rather than just a drop and go situation. Is this specific example that I give you is this traumatic so let's say there's well I have taken a crying child out of the mother's arms Mm -hmm. um, and I head to the pool now the child and the mother actually both calm down within about three minutes is that a forceful teaching technique what's the situation so the mother is with you at that time yes okay and she and but you're holding the child I'm holding the child. So basically, mum's really upset and maybe afraid of the water. So something's going on with mum. And then, of course, baby's reacting to whatever's happening with mum. But once I take take baby, mum comes down a bit, baby comes down, and within a few minutes, they're fine. Yes. Yes. So that's an indication that the the mother is, is instigating the anxiety with the child. Um, children are very sensitive to mum's heart rate and um, not only that, facial expressions. They know when mum is anxious. They know when mum is in a different place emotionally and they can not only sense it with body tension so that she might be holding her tighter than you would actually even realise or they would even realise. You know, the whole soft hand approach assists when they don't even realise that they're, they're holding them firmly. So... In that situation, if that child calms down because you have have nurtured that child in your arms, then that is a clear indication that the trigger is the mother and not the water. Okay. So if the child was, let's say, three years old, the same situation, but mum is staying on the side and I've got the child in the pool and I'm able to calm the child down, 
Is that yes. still okay? That's tolerable stress. So you're working yeah. with the child to calm yeah. down. We've got to really make sure that the word trauma that is banded around frequently, we, we have parents go, oh, my child had a traumatic experience at a swim school down the road and, you know, we don't want to you know, bring them in. Traumatic experiences require deprogramming and sort of a, a process, a long-term process to reprogram that child to get back into the pool or to gain trust again with another person. If somebody's had a scare or a bad experience and they've calmed down, that is more of a tolerable stressful situation. Repetitive stress is where a child is anxious, constantly wanting um, somebody to come and help me. You know, it's like mm. you've got your hand up in, in the ocean and you're calling out for help and nobody's seeing you. And it's just a constant calling and calling. And in, in a child with silence, um, it's in their mind. They're looking, they're searching, they're trying to find somebody to get them out of this situation. And if we don't recognize that they are anxious or we don't listen to the crying, it's that abandonment. It's that whole, I'm just going to give up because nobody wants to come and yeah. help me or rescue me. Yeah. That is the difference. Whereas what what you have done is the right thing by working with the parent and certainly with the child in a loving, nurturing, emotional way. If you say to a child that's standing on a bench, you just stand there and when you calm down, I'll come back, then that is negating any emotional attachment with that child, negating the fear of the child, negating the calling out or the crying or possibly the silence and ignoring that they are at a heightened state of anxiety. Yeah. Okay. Let's say I've identified a child who's just having a whinge. He's not afraid. He's not in danger. He's just having a whinge. You know how some kids just, okay, yeah, they might not want to be there, but it's kind of like going grocery shopping and they don't want to be there, but they kind of know they have to. And, you know, they, they still talk to you. They'll still engage with you. They'll still float, they'll still talk to the other kids, but they're just whinging at the same time. So they've just got yep. this whine going on. Mm-hmm. If I, let's say I've addressed it and I've spoken to the child about why he's feeling that way, but I continue teaching anyway, mm-hmm. is that a tolerable stress or does that move into the toxic stress? No, that, that's a tolerable stress. Um, the one in the whinging that they don't want to be there is more of a challenge to their independence and I want I want my voice heard. Now, when it's crying or silence and anxiety, you, you can tell by the body language. A child that is speaking to you is actually a good sign. That's a behaviour of I want to let you know that I really don't want to be doing this right now and they're voicing their independence. So this is all part of their emotional developmental stage they go through. And also this cognitive function that I can work out what's going to happen next because we do this every week and I know what's going to come. So I'm just going to, not going to do that. Having said that, in that situation, it's really important that it's okay to say, we are doing this and this is the boundary that I'm putting up for you. I, I understand it looks to me as though you're not happy about doing this today. Would that be right? So you're having a conversation and acknowledging how you believe that they are feeling or what they are thinking 
that is a way to embrace them into that situation because by ignoring them, it can compound. The following week can just get worse and worse and worse and then it can flip into a stressful situation. But if it's just a whinging situation, mm. they're testing their independence and it's actually a healthy conversation that this child's having with you and it usually only happens with people that they trust. So they start to push that after they go, all right, I know what Joy's going to be like. I know that, you know, we're going to get to this stage and I know I'm going to have to go and kick on the board down to the other end of the pool. I really don't want to do that today. And it's not an intentional defiance. It's just, I'm going to do that. And I'll also probably decide that sausages and and mash are not my favourite thing for dinner anymore. And I don't really want to go to bed at seven o'clock anymore and I don't really like that favourite book anymore. It's it's part of their emotional developmental stage. Yeah. However, if you go into battle with a child, it will it will only end up in tears. And and usually the child more than you. And that is not a healthy relationship that we want because inadvertently the parents will blame the water and not the situation as the behaviour of the child which is something probably outside of swimming that's created this situation. Yeah, yeah, I think I've seen that happen too. If we're going to go into battle with every food or everything that is put in front of us, we're creating a pattern of behaviour. And often sometimes children just cry in a pool because they've always done it. They don't really know why they're doing it. It's Mm. just a pattern of behaviour. I've always found using phrases like, we don't do that because it's Mm. not safe. Or telling them why. Always putting a why on the Mm. end, I think, helps them really understand why we're learning what we're learning. And I've I've found that not only with my own kids as they've been growing up, but when I've been teaching, it's really helped kids understand the importance of what we're doing and how things make sense as well. So for those kids that learn logically, I've Mm. always found that's really helped. That is absolutely brilliant because we've... This is, I think, why we are in, in the position that we're in, is that I would say as a child, why do I have to do that? And they'll go, because I said so. And I'm going, yeah, but I really want to know why, you know? And we're in a different society now with parenting. It is okay to explain to children why. You know, I'd rather you do this because this is safer than that, mm-hmm. rather than just going, don't do it. Children are not in an environment anymore where they're going to respond to that. I have one more scenario for you, and it does take us back to infants. So I'm in an infant class. All the kids have got toys. I take the toy off an infant and put it onto the side of the wall, and I'm asking the parents to get the kids to do a submersion to the wall, and then the toy is the reward. So as I'm taking the toy off the child, of course, they start crying, but they can see it on the wall. Mm -hmm. We cue the kids in that they're going to submerge. Upon the cue, they stop crying, they take their breath, they go under, and then they get their toy. Is that a forcing technique because they were crying when they started? If they're crying before they go under the water, yeah. I And again, guilty as charged, used to do the same thing, thinking, oh, well, at least they're exhaling so they're not going to inhale when they go under. The thing that we need to be aware of is there's a lot of reflexes going on um, with infants, particularly early stages. Um, so I'm guessing if you're going to the wall, we're talking under one. Would that be correct? Yeah, it, well, it could be anywhere from sort of 
six months to one and a half. Because children, um, the brain can get confused. I'm crying because that's there. And remember, looking at the, through the lens of the child, a child can't process as quick as we do. So if we go, there's the rabbit and we're going to jump it over there, you and I will go, yep, nanosecond, we get that. To an infant, it can take anything up to three to four seconds for them to go, oh, that's where it's gone to. Take the toy away, on the wall, crying, ready, go. It can confuse them. And again, it comes down to their genetic makeup. We don't really know what predisposition they have for confusion with mental processing. It's best to wait until they calm down before they do that or put a different toy on the wall. And, you know, if they hold on to that one in their hand, it's okay. They can have two. It, you know, they'll drop it, grab it, or grab on with one. And I've seen that happen a lot of times as well. It's more about allowing the child to be calm so you know that when they inhale, that is a reflexive inhale, not an inhale because I'm at an anxious state. It would be classified now as a forceful technique, but I'm very compassionate in understanding that a lot of teachers are inadvertently not aware that that's what can be happening. Mm. Yes, and that was the reason that I wanted to go specifically with that example. So if they calm themselves when you start cueing, does that change the situation? Yes. Or is that still forceful? If they have calmed themselves and are relaxed in the body, because remember, the crying isn't the only thing. We're looking at the physical as well. The real big issue for me, Joy, and this is just the recent research that I've just found out in the last couple of weeks, is it's the parent's reaction to that crying that we don't see. So if the parent is crying and getting frustrated and the the research on parents being anxious of children like that are crying at night, um, a lot of research has been done in, you know, trying to settle a baby that first comes home and, and the anger and the stress that they are carrying reflects in the way they hold a child. They're crying, they calm down, but I'm still angry. Why are you crying? And it may not be a real aggressive anger, but an anxious state of, of being and they're gripping the child a little bit harder. And again, we don't know. It is a lot better to just really wait until that child settles and go, are you okay? Are you right now? Yeah. And they, they acknowledge you with eye contact, then go. Because any physical tenseness or any tension from the parent is also going to um, manifest as a unpleasant experience for the, for the child. That just takes me back to an experience I had with my son when he was first born. Um, Mm. So first child, I'm not in Australia, so I've got no family as support, and I was trying to feed him. We had some major complications, and I couldn't feed him. And four minutes later, I handed him off to Val when Val got home, and she said, you've got to take him. You've got to take him. I can't do this. This is just, just ridiculous. And it was only when I handed him over that I realised I'd actually left little imprints on the back of his head where I was holding him and I was holding him too tightly. Yeah. And I had I had no idea. And maybe that's why he was so upset because I was yeah. anxious. Yeah. So that that hold in parents, I think it's really, really important that we as mm. teachers remind parents, relax your fingers, soft hands, 
and everyone has sort of said the same thing. And again, look at it through the lens of the child. Um, we talk about, you know, movement in the water and we, you know, frequently we start seeing go, oh, the wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round and it's really, really fast and the babies are being, you know, bounced around and on a Saturday morning, I don't know whether it's because there's more energy in the room, but it seems to be a lot faster on a Saturday morning and I go around the pool going, slow and they, they as soon as they slow down the whole energy of the class changes and the babies are a lot more calmer and more responsive because the added stimulus of speed is not confusing the brain because whichever way we wind up a baby we have to unwind them but at the same speed which assists yes. in their whole reception information so anything fast anything firm is not productive it's actually contradicting the whole point of being in the water this beautiful buoyancy and balance and vestibular and proprioception going on and we're just going through the process again we are talking about time on task stuff let's work on child focus approach and that would make a whole lot of difference oh so thank you so much you have put my mind at ease I have, um, I think the, the lines that were a little bit blurry for me are, are now a lot more solid as to what is traumatic and what isn't traumatic. And I think your explanation of what is tolerable stress and what is toxic stress, I think will help people really clarify that, hang on, this can be traumatic. So if I leave a child in that toxic stress all the time, then that's what can be traumatic. If I don't address the crying when they're showing signs of fear and that toxic stress then that's what can be traumatic and we don't know how children are going to react we don't know if a forceful teaching technique on this particular child is going to create toxic stress which is why this conversation is just so important thank you thank you joy thank you for the time and and i'm really excited about sharing more information as it comes to light i get excited the more research papers i found find that will correlate with swimming but the uniqueness of the research that I'm doing is about swimming and there isn't a lot of it out there so we're in a very fortunate industry that we we could be some real groundbreaking changes in in infant and um, early childhood methodology of, of, of learning and education programs so I'm really excited about it. Oh that is exciting fantastic what a great way to end a Friday. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with me. I hope we've cleared up some things for our listeners. How was that conversation? Did that clear up any blurry lines for you guys? I know it certainly did for me. So just a quick note, I know Sue spoke a lot about um, time on task and, and pushing programs. Now, I've always been a time on task person, but listening back to the conversation a couple of times, I've actually realized that this means different things to different teachers. So teachers from big swim schools like Julie's and Sue's, they have programs written for teachers where they might have a few minutes to work on each skill before they have to move on to the next skill. They have lesson plans that they really need to follow. That's how big swim schools keep consistency across, you know, two and a half thousand or three and a half thousand kids in a small boutique like swim school like the one that Val and I ran 
We don't have that. I didn't lesson plan for my teachers. They were expected to do that themselves. So, you know, I could spend 20 minutes on one skill if the kids in that class needed it on that particular day. So when Sue's talking about pushing programs, I didn't really quite understand what she was saying until I listened back to it because I guess for me, I've never pushed a program. I've pushed a skill. And however it takes us to get to that skill, then that's that's what we've done to sort of get to being able to perform that skill before we move on. So after all of this, I've really been developing a bit of a new definition of trauma in my own head. And I think trauma is actually the wrong word. So Julie, I'm going to go against you here. Um, I think if we start using the word trauma, we've let this go way too far as an industry. To me, that means we haven't addressed crying properly. We can certainly have children experiencing tolerable stress if we are um, emotionally supporting children through that as they learn skills. But addressing a child uh, experiencing toxic stress is where I believe the governing bodies should be drawing the line. So a forceful teaching technique, what's what's the definition of that? And here's, here's one that I think is a good one. A forceful teaching technique is where a teacher forces a student to perform a skill without the appropriate readiness or support. Now, readiness could um, be emotional readiness. Have they had the right skill progression to there? Um, all of that comes into play. So a forceful teaching technique may or may not lead to toxic stress, but the toxic stress, if left unaddressed, is what is going to create trauma. I think forceful teaching and toxic stress are two different things that can also happen independently of each other. Forceful teaching may not lead to toxic stress in every child, but toxic stress can also be triggered by a student's own experiences that actually have nothing to do with our teaching. So the student may show signs of readiness and have the appropriate support, but may still end up in toxic stress. So toxic stress could be triggered by a parent, a sibling, another child in the class. Our teaching might actually be absolutely fine, but the student brings their own experience to the class as well. And that's something Dr. Daryl Higgins spoke about in that very first interview in episode one. And this is where it's really, really important that we, that we address toxic stress with emotional care by advocating for our students. So you're going to hear me talk about advocating for our students all the time. This is something that I'm a really big believer in. And this is something, or this is the point where I think governing bodies um, need to be stepping in. If teachers aren't addressing toxic stress, that's where I think the governing bodies should be stepping in. As soon as we're starting to talk about trauma, I think we've gone too far. So yes, let's remove forceful teaching techniques because we don't know how the children are going to respond to that. Um, but if a child is crying in your class for absolutely any reason, you need to be a hero and wear your hat. Am I helping this child? Am I advocating for this child at that point in time? And am I inadvertently causing trauma? Because if I'm not, why are they crying? What's happening? I've got to get to the bottom of that. 
So crying absolutely, definitely needs to be addressed. This wraps up the series on trauma. Um, so please leave your comments below and we can continue the conversation. I have links for both Julie and Sue in the notes below so you can find out more about their programs. Uh, if anyone would like to have their say on the joy of aquatics, if you want me to call you and hear what you've got to say about a particular topic, please complete one of the forms on the website so I can call you. Um, if you've got questions that you'd like answered on any topics within the industry as well, there's a different form for that. So if you head over to the website for a qualification and fitness, which is www.aqualification.com.au and click on the link to the Joy of Aquatics, there is a box on that page with links to both of those forms. Um, if you're listening on Podbean, and you actually have it open on your computer, then you can find those links on the left. So thanks for joining me. I hope you've learned something in the first three episodes of The Joy of Aquatics. Next week, we will be talking about behaviour management. Now, we're actually going to speak with Eden Ahern, who's been teaching for less than three months about how she's learnt to um, manage behaviour. That is a really interesting conversation. Um, keep your ears open for that one. And thank you for listening to The Joy of Aquatics. Mm -hmm.